It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. Ontario's vaccination effort is on a roll. As of Friday, 76% of Ontarians have received a first dose and 21% are fully vaccinated. That means Ontario has already hit the vaccine targets for step two of its reopening plan. And we will hit step three targets in a matter of days. But here's the thing, Ontario is still in step one of its reopening plan. And it's led to growing calls for Ontario to speed things up and allow more businesses to reopen ahead of schedule. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I talked about the pace of Ontario's reopening plan and whether the Ford government should consider moving up the reopening dates given the progress being made on the vaccine front. Here's what Sean had to say. First off, it's just worth observing that the progress on the vaccine is terrific news. Um, you know, over the past several weeks uh, on this program, we've talked about um, problems with supply, problems with distribution. You know, the fact that we're now humming along is good news, full stop. Um, the question then, of course, is what does that mean for the reopening of our economy and our society? And we've we've also talked about how Ontario has chosen a more conservative, more cautious approach than not just every Canadian province, um, but virtually every subnational jurisdiction on the continent. Um, And so I just can't help but think that it will become increasingly unsustainable for Ontario's uh, vaccination rates to exceed the rates of other provinces in US states, and yet for Canada's, or Ontario's reopening rather, to be so far behind the others. I think if I was betting, Alicia, we'll um, have an announcement from the premier or from some other spokesperson from the government um, in the coming days announcing a kind of an acceleration of uh, reopening plans. And one can't help but think that this was the strategy all along. You know, the first one of the first lessons of politics is to underpromise and overdeliver, and and one gets a sense that um, that Ontario's cautious reopening strategy was sort of infused with that principle. Yes, and we are also seeing it's not just the vaccination numbers. uh, There's other health factors that the province is considering, including total case numbers and the rate of spread. And and all those are are looking quite good for Ontario. Um, It's been quite the turnaround in the last few weeks. But at the same time, there was, for example, a CBC Ottawa story about the scientists that monitor uh, Ottawa's wastewater for coronavirus. Um, They said that the level of COVID-19 has been trending up since Ontario entered step one. Now, this it's unclear, you know, what this exactly means um, for in terms of the COVID-19 spread. And this isn't something necessarily that the government is looking at. But, 
do you think this is the kind of thing that is informing the government in terms of being cautious, especially in light of what happened in the third wave when they kind of rushed to reopen and we saw cases go up? Yeah, I think that last point is so important that to understand Ontario's cautious um, approach to reopening is to understand the political backlash that it faced um, in the context of the third wave. It seems to me that the premier in particular was kind of an internalize that experience. Um, just a one thing maybe to put on your radar and the radar of viewers, we, we focus a lot on the ongoing challenges of, of the lockdowns and restrictions for businesses and, and others. One area of Ontario society that can go neglected in this regard is healthcare itself. You know, the, the mm -hmm. different groups have um, estimated that the backlog in diagnostic testing and um, common surgical procedures in Ontario will exceed 420,000 by September, that it's going to take something like three and a half years to clear the backlog that's been produced over the past 12 or 14 months as Ontario healthcare system has really come to focus on the pandemic at the exclusion of other um, healthcare needs. Um, there's no doubt, Alicia, that that has led to ongoing health issues for individuals, and in some cases, um, death. Um, and so, you know, not only is there an imperative to reopen economy and society, you know, in order to restore economic activity and jobs, one can't help but think um, that uh, another input to those cabinet discussions is the healthcare system itself and the backlog that um, is imposing real, real costs and harms mm -hmm. on Ontarians. So as Sean mentioned, a lot of the conversation around the return to normal has been focused on reopening businesses and the broader economy. But one of the biggest challenges of the pandemic recovery will be in our healthcare system. COVID-19 has exposed new and existing challenges in healthcare, and it's created a backlog that will take a lot of time and money to clear. So after the show wrapped up, we dug a little deeper and talked about how significant a challenge this will be for the provinces and the federal government on the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Alicia. I mean, it, it's worth starting you know, by recognizing that even you know, notwithstanding the pandemic, um, in most provinces, healthcare is consuming more and more provincial dollars, uh, primarily because of aging demographics. You know, in the case of the province of Ontario, for instance, healthcare now represents about 50% of all provincial spending. And it, by all accounts, it's going to continue to grow. And then you drop unprecedented historical pandemic right in, in the middle of that. It's obviously had significant implications for the system. It's in, in fact, I think, demonstrated um, the pressure and strain that provincial healthcare systems currently face. Um, and, you know, now with an estimated backlog of you know, something approaching 420,000 uh, surgical procedures and another two and a half million diagnostic testing procedures. You know, one can't help but think that something has to give, whether it's a case of an, an infusion of new federal funding or whether it's in, you know, a case like British Columbia, where the provincial government is, is actually easing restrictions on um, private sector delivery in the name of trying to, on one hand, address the backlog caused by COVID-19, and the other hand, manage healthcare systems that are, you know, under strain simply 
um, because of um, broader demographic trends. Uh, one can't help but think that when this is all over, healthcare is going to be an area that that generates a lot more policy and, and political attention in Canada. And um, Alicia, I'll stop here, but it's I can't help but say, and that doesn't even account for um, all of the um, heightened attention on um, the failings of our long-term care system. Right. Uh, so, you know, big, big um, issues in healthcare before the pandemic and certainly big ones um, coming at us after the pandemic. Certainly. And there was a, a report that was commissioned by the Canadian Medical Association back in October. And so uh, you have to think that this amount has gone up since then. Uh, $1.3 billion will be the price tag for uh, returning wait times to pre-pandemic levels just for six key procedures. Uh, that includes things like hip and knee replacements, uh, cataract surgeries, MRI scans, CT scans. Uh, so, I mean, this is going to cost billions of dollars. How do you even begin to try to return to those pre-pandemic levels? You know, how, do, how does the government begin to approach this? It's, it's a major challenge. Um, and, and it's just worth observing that, you know, medical personnel in our provinces have been under tremendous pressure for the past 12 or 14 months. You know, you mentioned in the live stream, the video from Toronto General Hospital, where doctors and nurses were celebrating the first day without a COVID-19 case in well over a year. And so, you know, one can't help but sympathize with them for what they've been through. And yet we're, we're sort of, we don't have the luxury of giving them much of a break, do we? Because of these backlogs, they basically need to get back to work and, and get back to work at extraordinary levels. I mentioned the the report in Ontario that um, estimates it could take as long as three and a half years um, to clear the surgical and diagnostic backlogs in the province. Th those projections, Alicia, assume uh, output with respect to testing and, and surgical procedures that uh, exceed the rate um, prior to the pandemic. So in effect, we'd be asking medical personnel to work harder than they were working prior to the pandemic just to get back to uh, where we were um, prior to March 2020. So that's a long way of saying um, it's it's going to be an extraordinary challenge for our healthcare systems to deal with the immediacy of the backlog and then deal with some of the underlying issues that were placing strains and pressure on the system prior to the pandemic. You know, if I had to guess, I think it will involve an infusion, a new infusion of federal funding. Um, but I, I do think you'll start to see kind of growing experimentation on the part of provinces with forms of private delivery to try to deal with routine procedures like knees and, and hips that uh, where the, the private sector can play a useful role without kind of offending the principle of universality. But I, I guess, you know, I would just say in, in, in some, you know, there's been so much discussion and speculation about life post-pandemic, you know, is it going to lead to a change in how we work? Is it going to lead to changing geopolitical relationships, including with China? I, I, you know, it seems sort of funny, but I, I, I would argue that the impact on healthcare may ultimately be the most significant. And yet, in some ways, it's been the least explored precisely because of both what we learned about the deficiencies in our system over the course of the pandemic, and then the added pressure that the pandemic has placed. I think we're going to be 
uh, thinking and talking about healthcare for for years to come. Certainly. And it's interesting that you mentioned the example of the NDP government in BC potentially looking to to private healthcare to help with the backlog. It's kind of remarkable, isn't it, to to see that government specifically trying to do this. Do you think that just shows how big of a challenge this is going to be going forward? I think that's right. Um, you know, that this is a case of a, you know, center left government um, looking at the data and making a kind of pragmatic choice. I think we will see more of that. The question, of course, is how do we put parameters around it to ensure that the system remains universal and, you know, rooted in a, a kind of single payer model? But, but yeah, one wonders if um, sort of inadvertently, if we don't look back at the pandemic as a bit of a critical juncture where um, in which, you know, we ended up with a, a growing role for uh, private delivery. I should just say in that vein, Alicia, you know, it's it's below the radar, especially given, um, you know, how much the pandemic has overshadowed virtually everything. But slowly yet surely, uh, a court case is, is making its way through the, the Canadian judicial system. Uh, it's a case involving uh, the private clinic in, in British Columbia run by Dr. Brian Day, who's previously served as the head of the Canadian Medical Association. And, you know, at the core, that case is about whether there is any room for private health care within the Canadian system. It's a complicated case, and we've had different judgments at different levels. It's going to ultimately make its way to the Supreme Court. And we may have a Supreme Court ruling in the coming years, precisely as we're kind of grappling with this question of how do we dig out of the pandemic backlog and address the kind of structural challenges with our healthcare system. And so, yeah, you know, if I was to place a bet, I would say that a combination of the pandemic and the Canby case, as it's described, um, may may ultimately be a major impetus for a, a kind of transformation of Canadian healthcare that is presently kind of going mostly undiscussed um, but may indeed become one of the biggest issues facing Canadian policy and politics in, in the not too distant future. Yeah, you'll have to wonder how the impact on the conversation around that case um, in light of the pandemic. But Sean, just before we wrap up, throughout the pandemic, the provinces have been calling on Ottawa to increase the transfer payments that they send to the provinces for health care. So far, the government has not done that. It's been something that the provinces have been calling for repeatedly time and time again. Is that ultimately going to be the solution here? Or is that kind of the first step in our way to recovery here? It's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating issue. Um, you know, so maybe just to step back for one second, um, you know, in the past, the Canada Health Transfer, which, as you say, is the major transfer payment that the federal government provides to the provinces for healthcare used to grow at 6% per year. It is now growing in line with economic growth, you know, which is something like three or 4% per year. And the provinces want Ottawa to at least restore it to its previous growth rate, if not higher in the name of kind of rebalancing who ultimately pays for healthcare. Um, Right now, Ottawa pays a kind of declining relative share of provincial health care costs. You know, I said earlier that I suspect that we will at some point see Ottawa respond to provincial demands and increase um, the Canada health transfer by some amount. What's interesting, though, Alicia, is it wasn't that long ago when the balance sheet, Ottawa's balance sheet, 
was really strong relative to the provinces. But with Ottawa taking on so much deficit and debt over the course of the pandemic, suddenly its balance sheet doesn't look quite as good as it did, you know, 12 or 14 months ago. And so assuming a major new long-term cost in the form of a much faster growing health transfer may not be in the cards. Um, So I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, I don't think we're going to see resolution between Ottawa and the provinces on this question in the foreseeable future, even if Ottawa um, responds with a nominal increase um, to the health transfer, I don't think it's going to be enough to either um, meet provincial political needs or deal with the kind of underlying issues of both uh, a pandemic backlog and demographic-driven kind of structural issues in provincial healthcare. I think something more fundamental is going to have to give. And as I said earlier, if I was a sort of betting person, I really do think that um, healthcare will loom even larger in our policy and political debates in the coming years because of these issues. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions on such a complicated topic that means so much to Canadians. We'll definitely be keeping a close eye on it. Sean, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks as always, Alicia. Okay, that's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website. And if you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening.